when you have recurrent trauma or trauma that the system is not able to resolve and bring back down to baseline, then it stays in the system. And in particular, like in a human being, during a periods of emotional development, when the system is actually trying to tune itself to the environment, and there's a window there where it's, a, it's particularly you know, open to the way relationships are informing the system you know, about how this is how relationships are. This is how we relate to others. This is how we relate to ourselves. And some of that imprinting that gets locked down and laid down and would potentially stay with somebody through their lifetime. But that it actually was a software. It wasn't a hardware. It wasn't something they were born with. And so this idea that you could undo that software, you could decondition the person. Hello and welcome back. Uh, I guess welcome back to me too. I've taken about three weeks off from the podcast and it's been nice to recollect and reflect on the process and I'll, uh, in a couple of minutes, I'll provide a couple of notes about that. But I want to begin today with a quote. It's just the first, first quote from today's participant. This book is The Fellowship of the River, A Medical Doctor's Exploration into Traditional Amazonian Plant Medicine. Dr. Joseph Tefer, MD. And the, uh, the chapter one begins, have you ever gone to the doctor for something you were concerned about and then been told everything's fine, it's all in your head? Well, sometimes it is all in your head and other times it's something more. And that's what we get into today. I, the way I stumbled upon Dr. Tefer is that Dr. Rachel Harris in our conversation had mentioned a man who'd been trained for many years to learn the songs that the Shipibo shaman use in ceremonies. And as a musician, I was really interested in the idea of songs being involved in the ceremonies. I was aware of them, of course, but I, I know something about this man learning the songs or having, having to train for many years before he could learn the songs. That was, that was the deal. So I, I reached out and we ended up uh, figuring out a time that worked. And so I started reading his book. Uh, my wife stole it first. She's a <laughs> she's been stealing my books lately. So she is um, in traditional Chinese medicine. Uh, she's a physician of traditional Chinese medicine, and quickly absconded with my uh, with my book and wrote all over it. So I ordered a new one, and then I was able to read it before I talked to Doctor Defer. And I'm excited to bring this conversation to you today. So first, I'm going to get to his bio, and then uh, a couple of notes about process, and then we'll get started. Um, Dr. Tefer has been an integrative medicine activist throughout his medical career. While in medical school at the University of California, San Diego School of Medicine and during his family medicine residency at the University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA, 
He's collaborated on research projects with the UCLA Center for East-West Medicine and the Scripps Center for Integrative Medicine. After residency, Dr. Tefer subsequently completed a two-year postdoctoral research fellowship at the U.S. Um, UCSD Department of Psychiatry under psychoneuroimmunology expert Dr. Paul Mills. While in San Diego, he also served on the board for the Alternative Healing Network and the steering committee for the UCSD Center for Integrative Medicine. Dr. Tefer is also dedicated to education. At Neorau Center Espiritual, Dr. Tefer supervised traditional training for allopathic medical students and medical student groups from the Southwestern College of Naturopathic Medicine and Bastyr College of Naturopathic Medicine. He's also worked as a professor for the Pacific College of Oriental Medicine's online doctoral program. He's now developing new educational programs for Modern Spirit. And check out that website. I've got a link to Modern Spirit. It's a really cool thing they're doing. Since 2007, Dr. Defer has been traveling to Peru to work with traditional Amazonian plant medicine and to study with master Shipibo healers. He's completed his shamanic initiation under Maestro Ricardo Amaringo and worked alongside him for years in ayahuasca healing ceremony at Nierau Central Espiritual. Here in the United States, he is working to promote the value of spiritual healing in modern healthcare and to demonstrate the intersection between the traditional, traditional healing and allopathic medicine. The um, Okay, so the, the I guess a couple things of note, now that you're introduced to Dr. Tefer, um, the, the theme music you're hearing on all these podcasts is from Modern Nation. It's a song called Clouds. I highly recommend you checking them out at modernnationsmusic.com. And the band that I'm using today is called Black Tie Dynasty. I met these guys in 2004 in Fort Worth, Texas. They were putting out records, really good stuff. The first song uh, or snippet of a song is Seawall from the record. Let me get it. <laughs> Down Like Anyone in 2008. And the last song that I'm going to play on this episode today is Tender from the record Movements, 2006. Again, you'll have links in the, um, uh, in the liner notes of the, of the podcast. Um, you, you can look up any information on this project at thesacredspeaks.com. Check it out and send me an email or uh, any, um, any notes if you catch any, any little hitches in that, uh, in that website. Um, Another, I guess the other thing regarding process is that given that this whole thing is about writing a book, I'm going to be slowing down a little bit on the releases of the episodes because I'm going to start generating sufficient energy to begin integrating a lot of these conversations and ideas. What I'm going to do is hopefully, um, I'm going to try to release an episode once every two weeks. And um, if I end up scheduling folks and it comes out once a week, great. But I'm going to, I just want to be able to communicate with each listener that, um, I've been really pushing hard to get a lot of this information out as quickly as possible. And uh, and I'm coming up on the time that I had set for, for me to begin writing, and I want to begin thinking and distilling these ideas. So I, I don't think I'm, at least for the foreseeable future, I, I, I'm having such an enriching time doing this that uh, that I'm going to keep doing it. Uh, but I need to I need to be able to create enough energy to be able to write. Thank you for listening. <laughs> it's really a gift. Uh, also, uh, something coming up with Rodney Waters. He was a participant on this podcast, episode 11. Um, we have started a, a, a music group that is c- currently unnamed, 
But on February 19th, excuse me, February 16th of 2019, Rodney and I will be performing and lecturing at the Young Center of Houston. And the lecture is inspired by uh, the idea of creativity in the unconscious. And the, what we did is we, um, the songs have been written and inspired by some of Jung's uh, Red Book. And so the, the, the evening will be spent talking about creativity in the unconscious and also uh, not, not doing lecturing, but uh, performing music. And Rodney's a pianist and I play guitar and we've got a couple of special guests that are going to come out. So if you're in Houston on February 16th, check out the Young Center's website. And uh, you can email me, of course, and I can send you information. I'm also going to post on Instagram a flyer um, for, the, uh, for the lecture slash concert. Um, I think that's it. And uh, please, as, as it always is the case, if you have any questions, email me. I, um, I'll try to get back to you as soon as possible. I'm grateful for you being here. Um, I'm grateful for, to Dr. Joseph Tefer. I have um, I've benefited immensely by him sitting down with me and being my teacher. We were at a distance. I, I shouldn't. Um, we did a video chat, but uh, nonetheless, it felt it felt personal and um, enlightening. Thank you, Dr. Tefer. I, I, Joe, I appreciate it a lot. Okay, folks, um, we'll leave it there and get to the conversation. Dr. Joseph Tefer, I am uh, I'm honored and excited to chat with you. So so much of why it is, as we were talking about earlier, is that you really bridge together um, what we would you know th this kind of biological, psychological, social, and uh, and spiritual aspect of um, the human being. And as I was mm -hmm. reading your book, it again, it's we all kind of say stuff like that, but you have the ability to actually back up what you're saying and it's much appreciated and i'm eager to kind of go through this 60 or 70 minutes and kind of follow the thread of your uh, of your experience yeah that sounds good good that sounds good let's talk um, about it well so let's let's kind of set this up if you would just kind of introduce um myself and the listener to part of your process because i think I think your early history in medical school kind of sets us up uh, for, for why in the world you ended up spending so much time in the Amazon rainforest and then what you did there. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so I, uh, in medical school, basically I came, uh, I was interested in already, as I, as I mentioned in the book, I was already interested in alternative medicine or integrative medicine, but you know, I went ahead went into MD program school and I got depressed you know I got depressed in medical school and I had a hard time and so I was looking into different um, different ways to find help and I uh, you know my father was a, a psychiatrist and I was also hanging out with a friend that I talk about in the book that was studying psychedelics and so I kind of got exposed to both things and tried tried antidepressants for a brief period of time and did find it helpful, but it was also kind of exposed to information that was showing me that the antidepressants had a lot to do with the psychedelics. And, and I was maybe 
maybe stigma around psychedelic medicine and healing was was kind of misplaced or I don't know, maybe things just weren't being well understood. And at the same time, I was interested in something natural and uh, kind of connected. And being from Arizona, I was aware of peyote. And so I ended up having an opportunity to go do peyote in ceremony at the uh, Peyote Way Church in, uh, in Arizona. Mm-hmm. And my experience um, in that ceremony, the spirit walk was really like a turning point for me in kind of coming out of depression and and just being opened up to this other kind of form of medicine of kind of spiritual plant medicine and became more and more interested and excited about that surprised like that I didn't know anything about that and um, started returning there and then getting connected and, and spending more time with with healers that were working with that and feeling kind of uh, just familiar with what they were doing and and then ultimately getting very curious about ayahuasca. My family's from Colombia and I knew about the ayahuasca and the Amazonian traditions and that that existed and that around, you know, in the, in the 90s, there was more, there was like the Cosmic Serpent by Jeremy Narby was a big book about you know, Peruvian ayahuasca traditions. And then the DMT spirit molecule came out, which was uh, the research, you know, reopening psychedelic research in the United States. And so all those things, while I was in medical school, I kind of had this increasing uh, curiosity about ayahuasca. And I was reading some books and, and learning about it. And then it wasn't until after I finished my family medicine residency, which was years later, uh, 2006, I finished that. Uh, I went to the Amazon 2007 in Peru to try ayahuasca, and I, I had a really big experience that just initially I didn't really know. You know, I went to a healing center for, for several days, had a few ceremonies, and it was just very, very impactful where I didn't know where it was leading, you know, but I knew that uh, I was going to come back. I wanted to explore it further. And, you know, I started doing that. And every time I did that, explored further during a period of time when I was doing research at UCSD at a lab that was studying, you know, kind of mind body medicine. And uh, every time I came back, something more interesting would happen, something more profound, something more curious. And I eventually started taking groups of people there, you know, after observing the kind of healing that was going on there as a doctor. I started bringing groups and the groups were having, you know, really significant healing processes that were just beyond anything that I had witnessed as a, as a medical doctor. And uh, at least in my practice in family medicine and what I was doing. And so then eventually I, you know, became friends with one of the shamans and uh, he was interested in starting his own center in Peru. And so, so yeah, with uh, with another partner, a Canadian woman, Svita Mamage. So we decided to do that. So we opened up Niue Rao in 2011, and I started working down there in Peru at a at a traditional healing center where you know ayahuasca ceremony was kind of central to to the kind of care that we were giving. And so I stayed with Niue Rao, you know, uh, pretty uh, like spending you know nearly half the year there or more till 2016 
during that time I went through the traditional training to to learn to run ceremony myself and to heal with the plants the way that we do there. And then I started tapering, you know, tapering it off my time down there because I wanted to kind of, I don't know, leave the jungle and expand my horizons again and, and write the book. And so I started spending less time there. And then eventually that meant like stepping down as a business partner, mm-hmm. which is kind of where I'm at right now. And um, so I'm going down there in January to, you know, Ricardo has, has bought out my, my shares and to sign the papers and hand it over to him and Svita will do the same. So now he'll be, uh, you know, the indigenous owner of one of the larger healing centers there. And uh, so that's, that's kind of where it's come to. And I'm, you know, I've been touring with the book and spreading the ideas of the book and working towards, we have modern spirit of a nonprofit that I'm a part of right now with my brother and a few other uh, colleagues, including Rael Khan, a psychiatrist and neuroscience researcher at USC. So we've launched the Modern Spirit Epigenetics Project, which is kind of like along the lines of what you're talking about, about this biology mix. And so it's what it is, is is a collaboration with USC under Dr. Rael Khan, the principal investigator, Modern Spirit, our nonprofit, which is dedicated to demonstrating the value of spiritual healing in modern healthcare and MAPS, yeah. the, uh, you know, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies. So we've already initiated the study and we're raising money. You know, that's why I'm just out there trying to promote and getting people to donate to Modern Spirit because we're collecting saliva samples on the uh, on people who are participating in the MDMA-assisted psychotherapy trial so we can track epigenetic changes uh, when they're having these really profound healings in PTSD or healings from PTSD, uh, which ultimately, you know, just to kind of, bring it all together it's like it's a deep emotional healing and part of that emotional healing is related to some you know mystical opening through the psychedelics and um and then therapy that they go through around that and they have such a profound shift in something that's so deeply rooted in them you know these people all have treatment resistant ptsd with showing you know physical symptoms associated with their problem and uh, psychological symptoms and you know many of them have uh, immunologic symptoms and hormonal problems inflammatory problems on top of the psychological stuff so it's there's a lot of reason to believe that they would have some kind of biochemical shift associated with this like profound healing where they no longer are showing signs of ptsd or at least have a dramatic improvement in their ptsd so we're trying to document that and prove that through this uh, saliva sample study. So that's been initiated. So that's kind of like, that's what's come out of the book and all the science talk and the blending and the bridging is trying to show how emotional healing occurs, the reality of emotional biology and ways to track, uh, it, you know, progress in that area. Well, you hit on it. I don't want to go into this now because I want to save it, but my level of excitement just spiked because when you finished your book on epigenetics, I had an opening where I realized that the implications of trying to do more research into that are fascinating and uh, beckoning me. <laughs> I, th- I think I would come at it a different way. I was really looking at the archetype and uh, and epigenetics, and I, 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 you know, just offline, I 
I hope later on I can learn more. I'm going to go check out the website, but that sounds fascinating. The research that you're doing there. Yeah. Modernspirit.org. Yeah. ORG explains the, the study and yeah. Um, but so let's back up a little bit, um, kind of tending to some of the things you said. The, the first thing that stands out is the, uh, the connection you, you made between psychedelics and antidepressants. Would you say about a bit about the biology there? Yeah. So the biochemistry, you know, like the early research into with LSD and now, you know, people have the Michael Pollan book if they want to review, you know, that's kind of like a big summary and there's other people that have written about it, but the early research with, you know, psychedelics, whether it's mescaline or, or LSD or, you know, eventually psilocybin, you know, around that time, they were also using this to help kind of elucidate, you know, the neurotransmitter story. You know, they didn't really know that neurotransmitters were major players in in the brain's chemistry or, you know, psychopharmacology or, you know, that kind of talk, like the idea that there's a serotonin system in the brain that is, you know, central to, to mood regulation and a lot of other things. And that our knowledge of the serotonin system was definitely amplified by research into psychedelics earlier and subsequently you know when they started kind of coming up with these serotonergically active compounds that are acting on you know existing serotonin networks in the brain you know things that have now are more popular like Prozac and you know the SSRIs those kind of medications and related medications that they're acting on this serotonin system. And, you know, that's the big focus of, of the psychedelic research is like certain serotonin receptors are kind of recognized as like, those are the main ones that are involved in kind of the, the biochemistry of, of, uh, of the psychedelics, you know, and that's, that's a big focus, psych serotonin 2A receptor and other receptors being responsible for, for like a lot of the, you know, psychedelic effect. But then, you know, there's this, those systems are also being acted on by antidepressants. And so, like, what is – so we know there's, they're biochemically related. You know, that's just already established. But, you know, what about the effects and the crossover with the effects? And, you know, in my experience that I mentioned in the book, being on antidepressants, was like, well, one of the things that, you know, was kind of bring me back to the moment in the sense of, like, pulling me back into my senses, mm-hmm. you know, back into my senses as far as being able to appreciate a nice day outside when previously, like I was kind of trapped in like deeper rumination or being able to have a f- sense of what I feel inside stronger. Um, this kind of interoception, you know, our sense of, of, of our uh, inner, you know, feelings and that sensory input. So kind of more open to sensory input and less, less caught up in our kind of internal dialogue, you know, our internal uh, rumination. And so then that kind of crosses over into all this talk that's coming up right now in neuroscience around the default mode network. Yeah. <clears throat> and the default mode network being kind of related to this overactive, you know, mental activity, uh, at least certain, you know, certain kind of dysfunctions in default mode network activity, maybe certain kinds of overactivity in the default mode network this network of, you know, brain circuits that would be related to people's 
um, mental rumination, you know, so to speak. And so you'd see more of this kind of disturbed overactivity and depression in anxiety, in PTSD, in addiction. And you see how these psychedelics, you know, they're very, um, they can profoundly like alter the activity of that temporarily. And that is connected to a lot of the, the experiences people have. And, uh, and similarly, the antidepressants are known to kind of, you know, affect that network, maybe more, maybe more subtly, uh, but you know, you do it over time. Similarly, meditation is being shown to, to diminish some of that dysfunctional overactivity. And so you see this crossover there between, at least on the neuroscientific side, and I try to get into that where it's like, okay, so it's just funny because, you know, the antidepressants, which are being looked at for their potential benefit in things like anxiety, depression, you know, and of course the PTSD or any kind of real mental dysfunction, they seem to throw this at them, you know, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, which would be this example of this really overactive rumination, you know, very disconnected from the outside world, from, from the sensory world. So that's one area where you say, well, okay, that everything that antidepressants are being used on is like also it's kind of big focus of research for in the psychedelic clinical research world, you know, OCD and psilocybin, uh, end of life anxiety and OCD, um, you know, addiction, the tobacco cessation studies or, or LSD, you know, therapy for alcoholism. And then you have uh, depression studies popping up with psilocybin at Yale and um, and elsewhere. And then the MDMA studies, all with assisted psychotherapy, by the way, not just the drug by itself, but within the context of assisted psychotherapy and, you know, drawing from a deeper expertise and experience, but, you know, MDMA and PTSD. So we see that it's like, yes, the serotonergic circuitry seems to be involved here, that, yes, um, medications or drugs or medicines that are seem to have some kind of activity on the default mode network seem to play a role in the treatment of these problems. Um, furthermore, you know, like a more interesting question that pops up and I try to like kind of lead into it in the book is that when you get people's default mode networks, you know, perhaps rein them in and you've got these people like Robert and Carhart Harris at the Imperial College of London saying, well, maybe this default mode network activities, it's maybe it's the neural correlate of the ego. Yeah. You know, maybe here we see the ego and he's kind of has a Freudian background and he makes his arguments that are kind of interesting. And so then once you kind of either calm the ego through, let's say, you know, it's antidepressants over a period of time or therapy over a period of time, or really, you know, shut it off with a psychedelic experience or tone its, you know, activity with meditation you do kind of see um, there are anecdotal kind of experiences, stories around how that's opening up people's mystical world. And with the psychedelics, a lot more obviously that, yeah, okay, sure, you're shutting down the default mode network and people are having these ego dissolutions. And that may be related to this improvements and, you know, depression, whatever, et cetera, et cetera. But the part they don't maybe talk about so directly is also when you do that, people have a tendency to have a mystical experience mm -hmm. and there's a lot of evidence around that as well. And what, what goes on there and what does that mean? You know, and then what kind of uh, energetics is associated with that inspiration and how does that lead to 
change in the individual. What do, what do you mean when you say mystical experience? So I'm saying that people like, let's say like with the psilocybin studies at Johns Hopkins, you know, they're, they're taking people, you know, once they give them enough psilocybin, a very large percentage of people will um, have experiences like, for example, where they feel like they're connected to some kind of divine source to, let's say, God, to uh, something that is beyond space and time, something that is ineffable, something that is uh, where they come into some kind of gnosis, they come into some kind of intuitive understanding of the way things work. They are able to, or they have the experience of... uh, be learning things about themselves or their past or other individuals in their life that they did not know previously or did not have access to. They um, are able to kind of perhaps experience uh, or have the, the subjective experience of, you know, talking to people that have passed away or talking to family, going through the, the experience of someone else, like of a, a family member, someone maybe that wronged them in a way that allows them to understand that person's experience and come into a compassion. Um, and then maybe that leads them into a pathway towards forgiveness. So transpersonal, I don't know, you know, they could talk about it. I mean, in the Jungian framework, probably they have a lot of different words to describe this phenomenon, you know, people coming into experiences of like pure universal love and that's allowing them to, um, to heal, you know, to kind of like to reorder things and within them and their story. And, uh, so, you know, there's, it's a vast world right there, but that is kind of the reality. When you talk about the MDMA assisted psychotherapy trial, and when people have this, this profound healing, or let's say we talk about the psilocybin research, and like Dr. Uh, at NYU, I'm trying to remember his name, and I should know his name because he's so cool, and I'll try to remember his name, uh, but I can't get on the internet right now, and he's kind of a friend. It's just There's so many names now, but there you know there's a few people starting to talk about this it's like well guess what like yeah okay we can talk about the receptors and we can talk about you know the epigenetic implications and and the the psychological stuff that's very subjective as far as people's reporting on anxiety scales and depression scales and ptsd scales you know it's 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 considered hard science but it's completely subjective yeah these people are having like major mystical experiences like the kind I just described, you know, while this healing is happening. So it's not just, you know, and that's not being talked about so openly uh, because they're trying to figure out how do you even describe this stuff in the journals. But we know that that's what it is, you know. I mean, it's just you have to be kind of a fool uh, to not say, well, if you have any kind of psychedelic experience, like that is part of the, that's part of what's going on. You know, that's part of what's really surprising to people you know so you have people like paul stamets describing you know he's kind of i don't know if you know who paul stamets is but he's he's kind of really coming out coming forward as an expert in in mushrooms not just psychedelic mushrooms but just mushrooms period and just the fungi and their role in the ecosystem and their potential pharmacy that they have for so many maybe medications and and we actually we sell his stuff here 
Yeah. So, so you know, Paul Stamets' stuff, his personal experience that he describes of when he healed from stuttering from this really massive, you know, uh, psilocybin experience that, you know, if you if you listen to him describe it, yeah, it's a, it's a very profound, mystical, wild thing that he went through that ended up leading to this resolution of his stuttering problem, you know, which kind of is something that you would go to the healthcare system for. Right. <clears throat> many children, you know, are sent in to deal with whatever it is, you know, whether it's speech therapists or, you know, psychologists or whatever it is, you know, and they even probably try some, you know, medications on those guys, psychoactive medications. So it's just like, okay, that, that's part of it also, you know, in other words, you're having these profound emotional healings, but the spiritual context seems to provide a much wider arena for emotional healing to occur. Yeah, that's. Uh, I'm thinking about the ego and the. I always said I have a buddy of mine who always said the ego's primary agenda is to say who's in charge and what are the rules, and it seems to me that when we, when in my office when we bump, I, I use this imagery where we bump up against stuff. People are kind of talking about, thinking about the same thing over and over again. They're ruminating over, you know, whatever it is, whether it's unworthiness or um, a particular relationship issue. It's a stuck feeling, and we we use that language. It's I feel stuck, right? And they are, and part of a, a kind of one agenda of a Jungian based psychotherapy is to relativize the ego, kind of put it into right relationship with the total person and also the world. And it seems to me that when people are ruminating, it's whatever they're ruminating ruminating about becomes so central in their lives. And that's when that depression hits because you're unable to imagine any other reality beyond the one. Exactly. Going exactly. And so, so the imagination is, 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 uh, is shut down and, you know, but the way, I don't know, the way it has kind of like come into my world or my sense of, of what it is. So you got, for instance, we said this default mode network overactivity, you know? And so when somebody's like that, yeah, imagination is shut down. Mm-hmm. And so creativity, creativity kind of involves like access to the subconscious, you know, access to to that which exists beyond just the, you know, standard mental frameworks, you know, feeling, for example, music, you know, being a perfect example, like music being basically like emotional language, yeah. you know, like unfettered from you know people I, I might i did a ceremony you know so now i sing the songs and i do the ceremonies and i do the ceremony and this guy who's a sound engineer and you know just typical like western focus you know intellectual focus mental focus and he's just like wow do you realize what you're doing like you know with these harmonics and and with this thing and that you know he's describing all these uh sound you know um nuances or that I don't even know anything about, you know, like I never, I don't have any study of that. And it's like, you talk to, I was watching a video on Netflix about John Coltrane and, and they were talking to one of his friends, a musician friend. And they get, they were doing the same thing. Like, you know, Oh, the, the harmonics and this and that, and all these different, you know, the techniques, the technical side. Yeah. And he was just like, well, you know what? His friend was like, you're not even, 
He's like, I don't know how to explain this to you. He's like, you're supposed to listen to it. You know? And so there's that side. That's what's past the ego, you know? And so that's our, for me, that's like our heart and soul, you know, um, is, is kind of like what seems to, you know, we lose access to that, to our feeling, to our, you know, as a child, you know, who's not, let's say, worried at all about making sense, you know? And then, you know, we eventually, of course, as an adult, we, we just want to make more sense of things and, and it's important and it's important to safety and it's important to our security and all those kind of things. But then, you know, when it's in my case, like I just went through this vision quest and in the vision quest, you know, so I'm somebody that has a tendency to ruminate more than I think a lot of people. And, you know, I got depressed in medical school and, you know, other people didn't and um, just like intellectual person and, mm-hmm. and all that. And, uh, you know, I find that like the mental activity, the issue is that there's a point at which your mind, which may, may be especially for an intelligent person or somebody who relies a lot on their brain, uh, you know, learns from itself. So it solves things, you know, it's not just you're able to kind of assess things and think things through and, and, you know, get, to uh to answers and try to figure things out the issue is you know when you're trying to deal with your own happiness you know there's points at which the mental activity just it just hits these dilemmas you know it's just not it's not able to figure it out so it just stuck like you said you know it keeps why is this thought still coming up and just oh i'm still now i'm back to this again oh but this is coming back up again and then just stuck 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 and it's like really to get past that i think from a lot of um traditional kind of perspectives it is like it does involve quieting the mind and listening to your feeling and allowing the heart ultimately and staying that's in my my you know way of doing it yeah staying with the heart and feeling long enough to finally that that informs the mind that that starts teaching the mind and so that's like uh you know when you finally understand how you feel about it and that that's really like maybe closer to your present experience. And so the Navajo medicine man that I work with, Daryl Slim is a very wonderful person. And he's just, you know, in his kind of worldview, he says that, uh, you know, the spirit is first, then there's the feeling, which is our response to the spirit, the spirit being, you know, if whatever people feel comfortable with, you know, whatever word, word worlds they like to hide behind, you know, when you're just trying to talk to somebody, it's just like the spirit being that this moment, you know, this moment of our life, this experience of our life. And <clears throat> so we have a feeling that responds to that. And that's kind of, that's reality of our life. And that's really where, where we're happy or where we're not happy. And then the mind reacts to that experience. You know, the mind is a secondary reaction to that. And so his point is that, you know, we get caught into these mental loops where we think, oh, you know, if I could just figure this out, if I could just figure it out, if it's just one thought and I'm really, I'm just a couple thoughts away from really arriving because then I'll know this and then I'll know that and then, oh, it's all going to settle down. And he's like, actually, at that point now, we're 24 thoughts away from the one place 
where we've ever actually experienced joy in our life, which is in this moment, you know, and it's through our feeling and it's through our connection to, to this moment. Like that is actually the only place that joy exists. And that's the only time we've ever laughed, you know, is when we really like experience that. And so it's just trying to help people. So then I also have the experience of watching people in their healing process that what is it that keeps people from, from feeling their hearts and feeling this moment. And, you know, and, and it's a lot of times it's emotional trauma and it's, it's this traumatic experiences and the brokenheartedness of it all that leads them to rely on their mind and not go there anymore and just say, you know, I can't really, I can't really feel into that space anymore. It's just too painful. So I'm going to, it's kind of become scarred over in a sense. And in a way you could talk about like the overactive default mode, net activity, default mode, network activity as this kind of scarification uh, over, you know, difficult feelings. I don't know. That's, that's, that's what I, that's my, you know, when I'm talking to people, if I'm at some medical conference, that's how I feel is that they don't want to go there, you know, why aren't we talking about this? Why aren't we talking about brokenheartedness, you know, when we're talking about depression? And for me, it just feels like they don't want to talk about it because once we open that level of discussion, now we're talking about ourselves. And it's like to really have that dialogue, you know, then it involves like, well, hey, what about you, sir? What about your personal relationships? What about your family? How are you? How's it going with your kids right now? How's it going with your wife right now? How's it going? How's it been with your parents? Like, because if we really open that discussion, that's what we're talking about, you know? We're not just talking about the neural networks and the biochemistry and the, uh, you know, the receptor sites. It's like we're talking about ourselves and, and our personal relationship with, with love. And I think that's what's kind of missing in a lot of, like, Western um, assessments of mental health. You know, and I think that once you, and it's just interesting because once you shut down people's default mode network and they have this ego calm down or even dissolution, it's like, it's a lot of emotional, uh, and that's, that's what default, that's what the deep Imperial College of London is saying. It's what a lot of people are saying. It's a lot of emotional content that comes forward, you know, that's like been waiting to be processed. And once this emotional content comes forward and is processed and kind of re- reconciled then all of a sudden the person a lot of times and at least in the case of the ayahuasca healing somebody that was blocked to visions blocked to visionary experiences all of a sudden they're having many more visionary experiences all of a sudden creativity is opening up more so like what is creativity is it related to our connection to you know inspiration like those words you know, inspiration, like, what does that mean? What is the etymology of that word? So it's just trying to bring back like a secular, you know, or just integrate, you know, spirituality back into a culture that's been very traumatized by religion, you know? And, and that's, that's, that's kind of what this is all about for me and just showing people that really health is what's, what's pushed to do you know, in order for people to really heal, it's like opening the door to mysticism, to emotional, 
the realms like that's what allows so many people to heal and so it, it's important for our health to address the emotional and spiritual dimensions of, of our experience and what is the spiritual dimension and again you know people want to just go through their mental gymnastics and you know it's just like i don't know i'm just trying to have a conversation you know if it was uh, sports they would allow all kinds of superstition and i don't know what and the energy you can feel in the room you know that's that's totally welcome to so much uh, of our culture's conversation if it was music and a rock concert and everybody's going and they're just allowing themselves to just join an oceanic experience with the you know thousands of people but then when it comes to oh, kind of spiritual topics or i don't know or bringing that into science or bringing that into our understanding of the material world they shy away from it you know well it seems to me that a lot of that so much of science is about defining we it's really so much about defining it in the scientific world perhaps is being led by people who are just being who that's not really you know being fostered in them enough you know maybe that's what it is i was i was uh i felt like that happened to me in medical school you know i felt like the indoctrination process was just like whoa like stop being a human like that's not that's not important anymore you know if it doesn't make if it doesn't fit the paradigm it's uh it's basically stupid you know as stupid as the person that is coming to you trying to describe a symptom that doesn't fit the paradigm oh well they don't know when i uh when i work with with parents i do work with families and when their kids start to follow their own curiosity the same anxiety always comes up. It's, well, how are they going to make money? Exactly. And so that's, that, and that's under, so, you know, that's understandable. So that's like the root of the fear is, is that a security, like materialism, you know, that is the economic reality of, you know, of life and just kind of the corporate takeover of the culture where, you know, if you're not doing that, you know, like right now, I had the benefit of having a dad that was able to help me with a lot of my education. So my student loans are kind of minimal compared to what people, a lot of people have. Yeah. So that gives me the freedom, you know, but most people are locked into this debt that they, what choice do you have, but to go get a job immediately with the corporate structure and you know, what way out do you have? Like, you have to do it. And so now it's like, okay, this is how we're doing it. And this is how the system works. And this is, this is how the system makes money. You know, we have to do the, we do the 15 minute visit and this and that. And, mm -hmm. you know, all this whole like machine is like, it's the money machine. And, and how do you, and, and when you kind of like have a society where community is just kind of broken down, I feel like then the corporation is replacing community. When I work in a, when I live in a village, in Peru, where it's a small village and really no one really, everyone just has no money at all, but they don't have these security concerns because on top of just knowing how to live without money and there's, you know, and the, where the ecosystem where they live and the support of, of the nature, they have a community. So once you have like 50 people on your side, you really relax, you know, whatever problem is like presented to you, it's like, well, you got 50 people to figure it out. And it's amazing what 50 people can do once you see what they can do. 
And I just feel like that's what's going on with the corporations and, and businesses is people are like, you get that security actually because now you're working with maybe 100 people, 1,000 people, I don't know how many. So if you get sick, well, they carry the load. If you if this happens, they do that. You know, if you forget something, they handle it. And so it's, it's really, it's about people. You know, it's not about this like institution. It's the number of people that really is what are giving people that feeling. And so... So the idea is then to expand networks, you know, other kinds of networks, like small business networks, where people can can derive security from being part of a larger team. And I, I really, I don't know, that's my experience, just from that very simple example of like, hey, we've got to do this, you know. We've got to, you know, something as simple as we got to, we're building this maloka, we're building this ceremonial space or this space we're going to do art in, and it needs a central post that's so big, it's a tree, and it's so heavy, like how are we going to get it there, and we're going to have to walk it there because it's through the forest. Well, we're going to get like 70 people to do it, you know, we're going to get some wine, and they're going to show up to, to have a few drinks, you know, <laughs> and we're going to be able to do this thing, and it's like it's going to, it seems impossible and dangerous to even try to lift that thing and place that thing, you know, but with enough people, it's actually quite, you know, doable. Yeah. And that's how we've done everything, you know, whether it's building a freeway or, or whatever. And so I think it's like, it's getting people to realize, yes, okay, it is, it is scary. Like, how are you going to get a job? And, and if there was a big team of people that they were going to be joining up with, your parents would probably feel better about it, you know? A team of people who are successful, who are living well, you know, it's one thing if they're, they're, uh, you know, you're trying to be a musician, but then they get on The Voice, they're like, yeah, okay, why don't you try it, you know, go ahead, you know, it's like, uh, there's these avenues that are connected to corporate <laughs> works and money streams, and all you can make money. so it's just pro. about the money, it's just about the money, that's all, and, they, and that's just their fear, because they don't know, we don't know how to live without money what would we do? You know? And so that's the minimalism that's popping up and trying to show people, well, at least you don't necessarily need like perhaps the, the amounts, yeah. you know, but it's also, you know, there, it's the crunch of, of the corporate culture where you're constantly battling. You know, I went to Australia on the little book tour and they have a decent minimum wage, you know? And so people are doing normal jobs, you know, working at a coffee shop and they're comfortable. I don't feel the stress and the edge there that I feel here where people who are working and still don't have enough money to live decent, you know, uh, relatively comparable lifestyles, you know, they don't have enough money to get out of a really, you know, a tough living situation, et cetera, et cetera. So it's like, there is a, there's issues around, there's the healthcare, you know, there's issues around the social network or whatever it is you know the, the safety net of this of the society which you know the capitalist society is also there's a, there's issues there you know yeah. healthcare they don't want to leave a job because they're worried about their healthcare if you don't have health insurance people think you're suicidal in the united states you know or some people do and when i dropped my healthcare because i was poor in peru trying to build a healing center and I realized I don't have enough money to pay and like I'm a doctor, but wow, I'm about to drop my healthcare and I was all anxious about it. And then I looked around the room with these shamans and none of them have it. Nobody has anything and they're not worried about it at all. You know, 
And I was like, yeah, well, I don't, I guess I'll be probably all right. You know, I'll just be extra careful. And like them, you know, like, it's just like, I don't know. There's just, we've come into these mentalities of fear, but it's also the society is difficult. You know, the society is difficult here if you don't have money. And so money is the issue, but that's what we're trying to work on is coming up with other ways of, of other economies, you know, that are, are, can support people and support people's children. So it's a real concern and you don't want to just be like, you know, not addressing that. Well, yeah, thanks for that. That's, that was uh, spot on. And I want to go back to something you were talking about that stood out to me in the book. It was the moment when you were starting to try out the song. And uh, I, I forget where it was. I had it in front of me a second ago, but it was when you were encouraged to um, kind of trust yourself and believe in what it was doing. Yeah, well, I think that's and it's just it's always it's always that you know, and that's it's so it's related to everything, and it, this is kind of back to the mind heart relationship. It's like there's doubt, there's always doubt, you know, and anyone performing at a level that you might inspire us, whether it's like you know, the Super Bowl or whatever musicians, it's like there's doubt, and so we we. We, and that's our mind, you know, that's us hiding into our minds and where we just, we're trying to figure it out. It doesn't make sense. How could it make sense? Oh my God, I can't do this. No one's going to buy this. I'm afraid. How's it going to sound? You know, like all those, like that mental activity versus just doing it, you know? And that's what a big part of like the Icaros down there in my experience and the way I learned and the way that Ricardo is training people is like, and just like with music as well, I think in general, it's like you have to practice. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not enough to just sit there and try to be like technically perfect and get into the right state of mind and the right whatever and not miss a note, you know, and not squawk. It's like you actually just have to practice. Like this is the only way you're going to get better. So you might as well just, you know, like, like I say, you know, I'm about to start singing in the ceremony. Let's say the first song of the ceremony or something, you're just in your mind, oh God, am I ready? Is this the moment? I'm not, I don't know if it's I'm in the zone. Uh, and it's just like, and then I watch my friend, he's training and I see him and I'm like, okay, why don't you do a song right now? And he's like, okay. And I see him and he just trapped, like he's just frozen. A long period of time went on. And I was like, hey, man, just start already. You know, you're not going to be ready. You're not ready. Just start. And then you're going to figure it out as you go. You know, and that's a, giving yourself that space to to figure it out as you go. And and that's because it's especially in this case, like an, an example I told in the book that I described, it was like it was only by continuing in the practice that I was able to 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 reach this other state that I was not previously aware of. You know, I had to get going and just keep going. Until like all of a sudden, wow! Now I'm seeing myself do things I didn't, I didn't know I could do. You know, what is that state? Well, I mean, in this case, it's, 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 it's uh, influenced by the ayahuasca. You know, so it's you have that on board, so you can't really like you know you have to admit that that and th at least in the particular example that I'm bringing up, it's like I was it was the end of the so I didn't have a lot of ayahuasca on board, but it's still I'm still affected by it. And so then you're coming into so that that assists 
So there's this kind of plant connection, this assistance feeling, but the state is, is for me, it's just more, it's more informed by my intuition. It's more informed by my feeling and less so by my understanding, my mental understanding ultimately. And so then that allows me to access a lot of things. You know, so like I said, my doubt, I might get a feeling that, oh, maybe this person has this or, or maybe it even comes in a vision, this thing, oh, let's look at this. But then my mind's like, ah, well, you know, and so I need that. I need the skeptic. I need the doubt to help refine. You know, I don't want to just jump in ungrounded. I want to be a fool, but I, so I can explore, but still it's that state that allows me access to my intuition, you know, and, and, uh, the possibilities that that opens, you know, things that I wouldn't, I don't, I couldn't know, but I am able to connect with. So it's a connected state. It feels connected. It feels connected to nature, to the moment, to, to the spirits, you know, to my heart, to my feeling, to my body. I feel connected. I don't feel confused you know i might have my mind and my thoughts are are there to contribute you know to analyze but they're not confusing me you know i feel like in union you said plant connection would you explain that yeah plant connection like so for us it's like that's you know within this practice there's that one more <clears throat> kind of dimension <clears throat> so you know just like you could you could do this kind of stuff with with meditation or <clears throat> i don't know even other kinds of psychedelic treatment or approaches let me get a little juice here uh but in this tradition it's it's nature-based. And so you're trying to connect to plants. So it's, it's that flavor of it. You know, people say, oh, I could do this with, we do workshops with breath work. Or we'll do ayahuasca at night. <clears throat> breath work during the day. And through the breath work, people, sometimes they achieve more, you know, in the breath work. And uh, as far as their sense of personal connection or their emotional release. Is this like the holotropic <clears throat> breath work? It's like that. There's different kinds. So this one that I'm more familiar with is called transformational breath work. And uh, it, uh, it's very powerful. And, uh, you know, for me personally, I get a lot out of it. Like, and I've had things, I've achieved things with that that I haven't really gotten through ayahuasca and the plants. So then when I'm like explaining to people and they're kind of wondering, well, why are we even doing that ayahuasca now? Like, you know, well, we could just do through breath work and it kind of feels like, oh, wow. You know, it's kind of disappointing to hear somebody say that given like we're, but, but then I, you know, my thing is, <clears throat> well, you know, that's fine. And hopefully they do, they get whatever they need, you know, whichever way. But when we're going to work with the plants, you know, we're adding this other element to it where it's like, it's not just what we can do through our own connection to our breath and to, to spirit or the cosmos or our emotions um, and our bodies. But now we're going to add this other element, you know, from nature and, allow, you know, open the door for us to allow plants to help us, you know, communicate uh, 
<clears throat> with ourselves and maybe even it's just like mysterious realms and um and so that's through the plats and and in the ship people tradition there's a whole training approach where you're trying to connect to certain plant spirits that the medicine of these plants in a way that they would inform you through your intuition through your thought through your feeling through your dreams and through your ayahuasca visions that that would change and as crazy as that sounds you know it's just like like i told these guys you know we was at some conference and there was this materialist versus the non-materialist and they're like whatever their their philosophy and i was just like you know you can't really assess like uh, an immaterial philosophy you know just by reading and studying and writing about it like you can't you're gonna try to tell me you can explain to me meditation better than somebody that's meditated for 30 years like and you're gonna tell me what they what they can arrive at and what they can achieve it's like that's ridiculous i'm sorry you know, <clears throat> if it was baseball, it's like, yeah, you know, it's totally different. The guy that plays a lot of baseball than the guy that's just telling me about how it all works, you know? And so you can't really, unless you go through these like extended plant diets and try it for yourself, it's hard to really comment, you know, on what might be possible through such a process. Well, I think the, the term that comes to mind there is animistic and the, at least as far as I know, I would say that that's the, an understanding that the world is animated, is soulful. And yeah. That we don't, uh, w w the human being is not, is not it. And we don't have dominion over everything. We're, we're living in harmony with everything. And, yeah. Well, and it's just like, and I just find it, you know, when people are saying, for example, like trying to understand if dog, you know, trying to talk about dogs, like, you know, limit somehow the dog experience. I don't know, in some way encapsulate it. But like anybody that has a dog that it's like, I don't know, how could you, you know, not think like, do dogs have emotions? Do dogs, you know, it's like, I don't know. Do you, I guess you'd have never really spent time with a dog. It's like, <laughs> I, I don't know how you could deny like they're, you know animation yeah and and so it's like it's just to me it's that a lot of people don't believe that we're animated you know like i don't know what they think we're robotic and right we're simply you know that and <clears throat> but so i mean that's it's just it's that it's like it's a continuum so you know if we're just chemistry well everything's chemistry so so i guess that's fine so I, I just feel like they're in the same boat as the rest of it. That's what I told this guy. It's just, it's like, I'm, you know, you, I respect your faith in this materialism. And, you know, they're kind of like offended by that. And I'm like, well, there's just a point at which your materialist philosophy hits some frontier. You know, there is a frontier at which you're extrapolating how materialism is going to explain the rest of this other phenomenon that we experience. And you don't, we haven't explained it yet through materialism, but you believe that we will. And that's your leap of faith. It's the same as somebody, anybody else's leap of faith. It's the same exact thing. It's just, you, you feel like that you're in some kind of like, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, just stronger position because of the other stuff, but you still are taking this leap. And that makes you just as much of a sucker as the rest of us. 
you know and so then it's just basically and then you know it just comes back to me again like their personal relationships and all that stuff you know that's like they don't want to talk about their animated selves perhaps but you know maybe they have a wife or they have a child or they you know it's like hey man all that stuff's gonna go out the window doesn't it sometimes like you know when you're heartbroken over this thing what do you you know how do you tell what do you tell yourself about all this what's going on you know it's like nothing weird has ever happened to you no <laughs> mystical thing has ever happened to you in your life it's like i don't buy it you know i'm sorry i just i don't buy it and i don't feel like it's an honest conversation and so in that sense it's kind of boring you know i'm just talking to this like paradigm that you're clinging to that you know i i get why you might cling to a paradigm and i you know i'm compassionate again back to the same old thing to probably the brokenheartedness that's right. underneath that. Well, I want to be sensitive to your time. We talked about uh, a recorded. For yeah, well, I, you know, we can. If you, I know you have your thing, we can go another fifteen minutes or something if you'd like. I'd love to. Thank you. Um, okay. I, I I would actually love to get to the epigenetic piece. Um, there, I mean, there's so much, there's so much to go into. Yeah. To me, that you finishing your book, you know, kind of meandering around that epigenetic question. I wonder if you would just do a little bit of explaining what that sure. is. Sure. Sure. So I would say, you know, and the way I thought about it, <clears throat> the one of the ways that it kind of came to me, like obviously that this visionary experience I described in the book, but beyond that <clears throat> was kind of this idea of, like the shamanic approach to people's healing and their emotional healing. And so much of it was about like healing the stories of their life, you know, and I think therapy, you know, and all these other approaches is like where, and then the shaman is talking about the energy associated with those stories, you know, that, that is like a uh, bound up within the body or was somewhere inside of us. And the way watching how people kind of like, cleaned or cleared or you know purged or reconciled once again these stories of their life let's say of some trauma uh in their past and were able to kind of understand it in a different light so healing the stories and healing the energies of their life and i was just like well where where would these stories be stored within our being you know beyond uh like memory networks that we don't even understand anyways right you know like where where within the cells you know where, where where do the cells store memories of their experiences and and so you know i started learning more about epigenetics and so people like bruce lipton you know are, are really helpful i think in his youtubes and his books to help people understand this concept of epigenetics and the way he talks about it is is there's like a blueprint, you know, the DNA blueprint that we've kind of been focused on in, in popular biology. But, you know, this blueprint is the same blueprint for, you know, a cell, like a red blood cell floating through your bloodstream or a bone cell, you know. So it's the same blueprint, but the, there's a contractor that reads that blueprint and is able to, you know, use it in a very different way, that blueprint. And so then there's the perception, there's the, you know, in his way, he talked about the cell membrane, there's this perception side, there is the environment that the contractor is responding to that's adjusting the way the blueprint is being, you know, built out or interpreted. 
And so that's kind of this interplay of the epigenetics and that's the contractor is the epigenetics. And so that you could see a process where like I, and I bring up sometimes like Dolly, the sheep, you know, you could take this breast cell, mammary cell from a sheep Dolly and they could deprogram it, you know, uh, all the way down to the stem cell kind of thing, this pluripotent cell. And then they can use that one and now reprogram that one and let that one ride and make a whole nother sheep, you know, out of it. And that is an epigenetic process. That's the software. You know, that's how I talk about it in my book. It's like there's the hardware, the DNA code, and then there's a the software, the way it's programmed, the way you allow that hardware computer to then you do the software and you upgrade and you upload and download. And now you can do all these different things with the same computer. <clears throat> and that's epigenetics. And so epigenetics and the biochemical level is like this machinery that's surrounding the DNA that has all these like possibilities of being tagged and programmed and imprinted to kind of remember, you know, and, and in a way lock in for, you know, an extended period of time. Like, okay, this is going to be a red blood cell, you know, for, for, the re for the rest of the life of that cell. You know, it's going to stay in that mode. But, you know, is there ways to change the program of even that cell? Yeah, it turns out there is. You know, we're learning more and more about that. And, and so what are the diseases that – so then what that allows for, just to get back to that for a second, is that within the lifespan, then there's all this opportunity to modify the way genes are expressed, which was previously like you have the Darwinian kind of <clears throat> genetics, you know, like, oh, okay, you just – you know, somebody has to die – for the gene pool to be altered, you know, like it's just, okay, these guys made it and these guys didn't make it. And so we see these genetic changes in the population over time. And then there was a guy, Lamarck and Lamarckian evolution. He was saying, well, well, there's probably things that happen within the lifespan that could alter the way genes are expressed. And so the parents life could help, you know, um, affect the child. And so, you know, and his example was, that kind of people poo-pooed was just like, oh, the giraffe. Maybe if it's just reaching, you know, every day to higher and higher leaves, slowly the neck would get longer and the kid's neck would get longer and, <clears throat> you know, get into these kind of things like some kind of morphogenetic fields and stuff that Rupert Sheldrake, people like that are into. But the epigenetics, you could have, you know, the way it's coming into medicine is things like diabetes type 2. So diabetes type 2, where it's this lifestyle thing, you know, where people are like, oh, because of the food they eat and the way they live, they're starting to develop this, this diabetes. And so it looks almost like a genetic disease. And they'll talk about it. Well, my parents had it and my grandparents had diabetes type 2. So, you know, it's a genetic disease. But really, it's kind of an epigenetic disease. Uh, and you can see because you can reverse it, you know, even people with and, you know, there's a lot of confusion about that in the society. They're like, oh, you know, I got to take the pills. There's no way out of this. And, and for some people, it may be very difficult to reverse it. But, but the main reason it's difficult for people to reverse it is because it requires lifestyle change. And a lot of people and a lot of doctors and nurses don't believe their patients can change their lifestyle. <clears throat> the American lifestyle is so unhealthy in regards to things like this. But I've seen a lot of people reverse it. You know, and it doesn't even necessarily take that much in some cases to reverse it. And so you see what looks like a genetic disease being reversed. And so that's a, it turns out there's a lot of epigenetics involved. 
um, in diabetes and it's the epigenetics of, you know, being exposed to like all this sugar all the time and all these carbs, you know, and the way that alters mm -hmm. the system. And when you bring that back out, you know, the way things would start to go back. Other areas <clears throat> that are really kind of interesting for epigenetics and people are seeing is cancer. Where you might have a genetic propensity, maybe to breast cancer or something like that. But where, you know, truth be told, although it's just the ignorance abounds, it's just like cancer is a very environmental problem. You know, when Fukushima happens and the nuclear power plant melts down, everyone says, we better get the heck out of here because we're all going to get cancer. Everybody knows that. When there's a big chemical spill with these massive carcinogens, we better get the heck out of here. Everybody's going to get cancer. And yet we spend so much energy. Where is the cancer coming from? Where is the cancer coming from? Where is the cancer coming from? You know, you hear the Amazonians say, we don't want them bringing those, that civilization here because they're going to bring the cancer, you know, because there's so many carcinogenic compounds that are just flooding our society by the industry, you know, and that are just people we're in constant denial about and we're in a constant legal battle to expose, you know, the danger of these compounds, whether it's lung cancer from smoking, you know, being a, a perfect example like the the cover-ups that go on and just that this nobody wants to really go there and look into that and like so in other words there's a huge risk with carcinogenic compounds in our society and when we see these kind of you know there's other factors people are living longer and all this other stuff you know but that's a major one that does kind of gets overlooked over and over again unless something obvious like fukushima happens or you know, then everyone all of a sudden wakes up and says, well, we got to be careful about our environment because it's going to put us at risk for cancer. And so um, the way that oncogenes, you know, cancer genes could be turned on and off, uh, that some people would develop cancer, you know, perhaps because of the accumulation of all this kind of insults to the system. So cancer is being looked at as a very epigenetic problem. Then you get into some other stuff like neurodegenerative problems like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. And where you see this kind of accumulation of things somehow is, is making it worse. And you see how like nutrition and lifestyle, you know, make a difference. And then mental health problems. So mental health problems, there's growing body of evidence that there are epigenetic, you know, and something like addiction you know, where they try to make an argument of like, oh, this is a genetic problem, all this family alcoholism. But it's like, well, why would you biologically evolve to become, you know, addicted to alcohol? Like, why would that be a gene thing? You know, why would the biology, why, why is it, what survivor advantage is involved there? And really, but you can show that there's like this epigenetic imprinting from childhood trauma that can be passed on transgenerationally that could alter uh, people's mental health. And that is, there's a growing body of evidence in PTSD and anxiety and depression and addiction that there's epigenetic things like around things like cortisol receptors, you know, uh, stress response receptors being affected and maybe overwhelmed and maladaptively programmed because of recurrent trauma. So you have these Holocaust survivors showing, you know, epigenetic changes. It was war trauma that affected their body. It wasn't just, 
genetic propensity to depression or an anxiety when their kids have a higher prevalence of anxiety or, you know, Holocaust survivors, it's not simply because they're just whatever, you know, neurotic um, Jewish ancestry or whatever people want to, you know, some kind of picture they want to paint. It's like these people, uh, they can show when there's research, growing body of research to show that, you know, these people were deeply affected by this trauma in the concentration camps and in the war. And that that gets tagged in the epigenes and the epigenetics and that, yeah, there's a lot of like maybe uh, wiping of the slate, you know, when the sperm and the egg are, are being made, but it's not all wiped. The etch sketch isn't fully wiped. There is a lot of epigenetics that's passed on and there's a lot of reasons that it's passed on um, for uh, uh, survivor you know, advantage. So examples like with the mouse where they have a mouse that they shock them every time they smell this smell until finally just the smell alone is enough to cause like a traumatic response, a stress response in the mouse. And then they realize that that can be passed on to several generations where a mouse that's never smelled the smell already reacts to the smell that way. And that this is actually part of instinct. This is a, this is part of the genetic versatility the contractor is built into the system is designed this way so that your future offspring will automatically have some cues to go off of within the ecosystem. So this is an expanded part of the DNA based life form, the versatility, the transgenerational versatility that exists. So this is part of our biology that we're just learning about now again, but it you know makes sense with what kind of we already know about what being alive is and the animals and the plants and nature. And the seven generations, you know, that the Native Americans talk about and even the Bible talks about, you know, um, that maybe that's how long it takes some epigenetic stuff to wash out. You know, and there's some evidence showing some of that with some of these mouse studies, at least with six generations. So that's what epigenetics is kind of related to. And then the way it comes into this picture is the way trauma, just like with this mouse example that I showed the way strong emotional experiences have epigenetic consequences because the system is trying to uh, alert itself and make note of, you know, potentially traumatic things. And so when you have recurrent trauma or trauma that the system is not able to resolve and bring back down to baseline, then it stays in the system. And in particular, like in a human being during a, periods of emotional development, when the system is actually trying to tune itself to the environment, and there's a window there where it's, a, it's particularly, you know, open to the way relationships are informing the system, you know, about how this is how relationships are. This is how we relate to others. This is how we relate to ourselves. And some of that imprinting that gets locked down and laid down and would potentially stay with somebody through their lifetime. But that it actually was a software. It wasn't a hardware. It wasn't something they were born with. And so this idea that you could undo that software, you could decondition the person. And so then therapy and all these other approaches, meditation that are working towards deconditioning people's traumas. And then you have Terrence McKenna who commented, who was already talking about epigenetics in the 90s, 
just from a cultural perspective and just saying, you know, look at these, these, these psychedelics, they're deconditioning agents. There's something about like this serotonin circuitry that we were talking about earlier. That's like linked to this open gating, you know, kind of opening, reopening the gates and allowing people to come out of this, like, you know, these ruminated trenches and see like something beyond that and to reorganize um, some of this programming. And that's what like Stephen Booner, who is a writer of, you know, a lot of books and he's exploring, like he's been trying to explore what, a, what do serotonin systems do in plants? You know, like why, why are serotonin systems, why are they serotonergically active like neurotransmitters in plants and, and, why do these compounds exist in fungi and some of these smaller, simpler, you know, so-called simpler beings? And it's like, well, one of the things they seem to do is, is like to create this kind of deconditioning, you know, to open these gates, to allow things to reorganize. And it's like, well, guess what? That smell that you're traumatized by, your grandma mouse was traumatized by, it's not really like a, a factor in our life, but it's like it's in your epigenes. So how are we going to get it out of there? How are we going to reprogram you? And it's like, well, this is a possibility. You know, we could, we could use these deconditioning agents with associated therapies that are known to promote the activity and effectiveness of these deconditioning agents, i.e. MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, i.e. traditional Shipibo ayahuasca ceremony. And now we can help promote shifts within people of problems that we thought were genetic, chronic disease, like let's say certain forms of depression, and all of a sudden the person is like showing market improvement. Some kind of deconditioning happened. We know that now that epigenetics plays a role in their depression and that childhood trauma in some cases is part of that imprinting process. So how do we heal that? And so, you know, then I, you know, I do get into a little mystical discussion about epigenetics that it seems like that level of the, of the biochemistry at the very least is sensitive to emotional exchange, you know, immaterial exchange that people could be traumatized by, you know, emotional neglect uh, and that that would actually affect their biochemistry. So it's a very subtle um, a subtle system that's sensitive to like all kinds of energies, <clears throat> you so, know, from nutrition and everything else. I gotta, we gotta shut it down. I simply wish we had <laughs> three more hours. Yeah, sure. But you know, check out modern spirit, I check will. out the stuff and read about it. And it's not just me. Probably a lot of other people have more to say about this. Yeah.